Welcome to episode number 24 on the My Story Podcast. On the My Story Podcast, we feature interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs who tell their story and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hi, I'm Conrad Weaver, your host for the show. I hope you're having a fantastic week and that you're on the way to becoming who you're designed to be, that you're reaching your purpose in life. Today on the My Story Podcast, we'll hear a conversation I had a few weeks ago with one of my favorite people in the world. Craig DiMartino is a professional rock climber. He's known as the Gandhi of climbing. He's such a nice guy. Craig had a tragic climbing accident back in 2002, but has come back from that and has turned his life to helping others with disabilities. Stay tuned for Craig's amazing story. Hey, at the end of today's interview with Craig, I'm going to share a few takeaways I have from today's show. It's something new I'm starting with the My Story podcast, and I want to encourage you to share your thoughts and your takeaways on the My Story podcast homepage or on the Facebook page or on the Apple podcast page. Let's encourage each other and inspire each other to a life that's filled with purpose and meaning. So share your thoughts and takeaways from each of the shows, and we can all learn from each other and ultimately, hopefully, make the world a better place. I also encourage you to share this episode with a friend. If these interviews have meant a lot to you, let someone else in on it. It's a part of living life with purpose and meaning. And if you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be amazing. I really appreciate it. And now here's my interview with Craig DiMartino. Well, Craig DiMartino, welcome to the My Story Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Conrad. I appreciate it. Yeah, so you and I uh, go way back, uh, back to the early 2000s, I think, where yeah. we worked together at a publishing company there in Colorado. And I uh, got to know you there and over the years have stayed in touch in, in a variety of ways. So thanks so much for coming on the program, and I look forward to uh, hearing your story. So, so for the listener, who are you and what do you do? My name is Craig DiMartino. Um, I am a professional rock climber based here in Colorado. Um, kind of been a climber most of my life. Uh, kind of started climbing right out of high school and just really never stopped doing it. And then that's kind of led me down a bunch of weird roads, um, just actually through a, a series of events that I'm, we're going to be chatting about today, um, ended up becoming um, an adaptive rock climber, which is something I can explain later. But uh, that has kind of led me to where I am today. And I'm married, been married for 23 years to Cindy. And we have two kids, Maya and Will. Um, and we are just kind of happily living life here in Colorado. And how old are your kids by now? Our kid, yeah, that's the funniest part. Um, Nineteen and twenty-one, and they are. This is our first year as empty nesters, which is. Empty nesting. Um, I know, yeah. I know. And <laughs> people told me about it. You know, they're like, "Oh, it's really weird. It's it's this, it's that." And I love our kids uh, dearly, but it's like it's actually quite fun. I'm not gonna lie. It's uh, it's fun. You know, I'm the same way. Pretty- I, I, you know, love my kids, and they're both a thousand miles away now, and. Uh, uh, you know, I love just spending time with Jody and yeah. going on little weekend adventures with her. Yeah, you realize you don't have to be anywhere particularly. You just Cindy and I can just go do what we want to do, and and it's like you're not worried about oh well, but we got to make sure we're there here. 
Um, so it's quite, it's quite nice. I'm, I'm not arguing. Yeah, no more soccer games or for us right. it was hockey hockey games and school dramas and all that kind of stuff, right? Yep. And uh, but now the challenge for us is our kids are like one, our daughter Lakin, she's in Texas, and Spencer is in Orlando, Florida. So it's tough to uh, you know we miss them. I um, hear you. So a professional rock climber. So you get paid to climb rocks. I do. <laughs> I do. Which is a very odd thing uh, to even say. But yeah, it's um, when I started climbing, that was what I wanted to do. And, and I was a photographer at the time. And I just thought, you know, maybe someday I'll figure out how to do that. And back then, you know, I've been climbing for 31 years. Back then, there wasn't really, that wasn't something people did. Uh, There's very small ways to make money in the outdoor industry. But as it's grown and as climbing has increased in popularity, it's been an easier thing to do. It's still not easy. It's still a very odd um, way to make a living. But um, yeah, you can you can now figure out how to do it. So tell me, how did that happen? So oddly enough, um, I had been climbing about 17 years. Um, no, actually, I'm sorry, about 13 years. And back in, this was 2002 and was climbing with a really good friend of mine. We were climbing in Rocky Mountain National Park and um, just through a series of miscommunications, really small miscommunications, uh, I was accidentally dropped 100 feet. And so for the listeners who aren't climbers, 100 feet is basically a 10-story office building. So it's like stepping backwards off of a ledge that's 10 stories in the air. And I free fell that entire distance and about uh, 20 feet from the ground hit a tree and that tree stood me back up into a vertical orientation so that when I actually hit the ground, my my body was basically in a standing position, which from that distance is one of the only ways you can actually survive uh, just because that impact has to go somewhere, all that energy. And so the my feet and legs took the brunt of that, that fall, which destroyed my heels and ankles and tibia and fibula in both legs, um, compound fractured them actually. So that means they come out of your skin. They tear the skin open and, mm. and come out. And that shockwave then traveled up my body and broke my back at L2, which is kind of straight through your belly button. Um, and then it kept moving up and broke the ribs on my right side and punctured the lung on my right side and then uh, broke my neck at C5, C6, which is kind of right through your Adam's apple and then collapsed me onto the ground. And all those Injuries obviously are huge. Um, mm-hmm. I also severed one of the arteries in my leg, so I was bleeding really badly. And my partner kind of, we had a, I was awake, which which is fortunate and unfortunate, but, you know, I was awake and able to con- converse with him. And we came up with a plan and he ended up having a cell phone with him. Um, and next to this cliff ended up getting a signal, which was a really odd thing um, and was able to start the, kind of click the wheels into into motion as far as how you get a, a rescue started. And that kind of lasted about the next seven hours till they got me to a clearing where a helicopter could land so they could flight for life me to a hospital. So they did that. Um, again, major injuries. They just figured they'll do as much as they can, but um, kind of called my wife about halfway through the carry out and said, you know, he was, he's been really badly injured she came up and saw me and then ended up meeting me at the hospital where she was greeted by, you know, one of the uh, orthopedic surgeons just saying he's probably not going to live. So, you know, do you, mm. how much, how much do you want us to do really? And, uh, she was like, yeah, obviously everything you can, um, signed all sorts of orders to, to help save me. And 
they, they fused my back first. They kind of went in and had to debreed my spine and they go in and pick off all the pieces that broke and splattered into your spinal canal. And that mm. took many hours. And then they fused my back from L1 through four. And then basically just put me in a bunch of um, bracing that wouldn't allow me to move and just waited to see if I lived through the night. They put me in intensive mm. care on a ventilator and we just waited. Um, I actually wow. obviously made it through that night. Um, but then mm-hmm. uh, the next morning, well, probably the next afternoon is when I came to again. And that's when they kind of start that process of, okay, now what do we do with all these injuries? And they begin mm-hmm. that long process of rehabilitation. How long did that take? The, the intensive care kind of piece lasted about seven days. From there, they moved me to orthopedic care for two weeks where they're basically doing surgeries every other day. They give you a day off and then they would go in and try to fix something else that I had broken or, or tore apart. And that hmm. was mostly my feet. They were working on my feet and ankles a lot. And so got those to a stage where the, you just have to wait and then moved me to an extended care facility for the next two and a half months. So I kind of left on July 21st and I came home three months later um, from the hospital after this extended care piece to my house, but I couldn't, I could barely get around. I could, I could walk maybe with a walker a little bit. I could use a wheelchair, um, but you know, my future as a rock climber was very much in question, my future of doing anything <laughs> was very much in question. Um, but we just kind of, Cindy and I just worked daily, you know, minute to minute on how do we kind of build back to where I was. Mm-hmm. I was going to say at that point, what did that do to your thought process? What were you thinking about your life at that point? It was, it was really strange. You know, you, when you get hurt that badly, you, it, it's a, it's an incredible blow to your, um, psych. And so your, your mental kind of hopscotch, as I would call it, is always changing and you're bouncing around all the time because, you know, you knew who you were before you got hurt. And so I was a dad, I was a husband at that time I was a photographer and I was a climber and a climber was Cindy and I met in a climbing gym. We built our life around climbing and traveling together. And so all of a sudden this really big part of your identity is removed and you're trying to figure out who you are again. And for me, it was like, I, I was a climber in my head, but I wasn't sure that I was going to actually go back to it. So I was in this constant struggle of who am I now? Who am I going to be going forward? And you know, my, my marriage was never in question. My, obviously I'm always going to be a dad. But you're trying to figure out like, well, who am I though if I'm not a climber and, mm-hmm. and what am I going to do going forward and how are people going to look at me? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I had all these horrific injuries that have, you know, left these big scars on me and on my back has a big racing stripe down it from where they cut me open to put the, the fusions in. You know, my legs are all scarred up. And um, for the next year, really 18 months, I kind of struggled with, okay, who am I? What am I doing? Uh, my right leg stayed in a cast for that entire 18 months. And I kind of got to this part where I was like, well, if I'm going to go back to climbing, I kind of want that to be my decision. I don't want the accident to be something Mm -hmm. that pulled me away from it. And so as crazy as it sounds at at 18 months, I decided to go back in the hospital and amputate my right leg. Um, It just wasn't Mm -hmm. healing. It was still in a cast. It had a, a crazy amount of hardware in it. And I just thought, you know, if I amputate it, then at least I have the opportunity to decide, okay, 
is this something I still want to do? And that being climbing, because I could get a prosthetic that would be fairly predictable. I could build a climbing foot. Um, there weren't, you know, I didn't know any amputee climbers at the time. I just thought I'll just figure this out as I go. And I did, I went back in and 18 months after the accident and amputated my right leg below the knee. And then probably six months after that, I was, I was tying back in and climbing again for the first time. Wow. What, I mean, what was that like to, after this you know, horrific fall and, you know, almost losing your life and, and then making that decision to clip in again and climb up the wall? It was, it's, it was insane. Um, you know, I just, every piece of you is fighting to not do it because you're, you're kept, you're, you know, you are certain you're going to get hurt again. That was my biggest fear actually was, I just mm. don't want to get hurt again. And so every time I would tie in, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to get hurt. This is going to be horrible. And, um, mm. and it wasn't, and, and, you know, you don't get hurt, but then you're fighting this fear and the fear is so out of proportion to what you're doing, you know? So I would be doing these very tame climbs where even the chances of falling were almost nothing. And yet in my mind, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get hurt again. I'm going to get dropped a hundred feet. This is going to be horrible. And it really did that for the next two years. I just struggled with this fight of fear versus reward. And was it worth it? And is it worth it? And should I keep doing it? And what I would do is come down from climbing and just swear it off and say, okay, I'm not going to do it again. It's just, this is mm. too stressful. Um, but then, you know, I'd be sitting and maybe talking with Cindy and it would just kind of, I would remember things I liked about it. And those were the things that initially drew me to climbing, which was, you know, the location, you know, being outside mm -hmm. in these beautiful places, being with people I love, being with my friends and enjoying this really simple activity of just moving over stone in this vertical environment. And that was mm -hmm. what I would go back to. And so what was the reaction from Cindy and your kids when you said, hey, I want to go back to climbing? From Cindy and my kids, it was it was completely normal. You know, Cindy is a core climber as as I am. She's climbed as long as I have. The resistance came from like our extended family. So my my mm -hmm. mom and dad, um, Cindy's mother, uh, my brother and sister. They were when I. And in fact, I didn't tell them I was climbing. I probably hid it for about a year and just didn't put anything on social media. Didn't put anything out there. Didn't tell anyone I was doing it. I would just go and experiment with our friends here in Colorado and. And Wyoming. And then when they did find out, there was this huge um, pushback just saying, you know, oh my gosh, this is something that almost killed you. Why on God's green earth would you go back to that? And mm -hmm. trying to explain that to someone who's not a climber is very difficult because, you know, you're saying, I know it did, but that was a freak accident. And it's just one of those things when climbing accidents happen, they're usually catastrophic as mine was, but you can do things to mitigate that that risk and we do that all the time but it's uh it was a very long struggle with my extended family on, on why i wanted to do this again hmm. so how did you go from that to kind of recreationally climbing to being involved in the organizations and doing professional climbing i was climbing uh, again probably about two years um just sorting out kind of how it was all going to work and i decided i would go back and repeat some of the climbs that i had done as an able-bodied climber, I wanted to just go back and do those as a, as a disabled climber. And so was doing that slowly. And uh, a guy in Seattle had heard what I was doing. His name's Fitz Cajal, and uh, he's a podcaster and he's, he's well-known in the outdoor community. And he said, Hey man, what do you, you know, what do you think I'm doing next? And I was like, I just want to go out to Yosemite and see what that's like again. And 
um, he was like, do you mind if we tag along and just see what it's like? And I was like, yeah, totally. So he went with me to Yosemite and I tried to climb El Cap again. Um, that was, I climbed El Cap as an able-bodied climber in 1995 and just thought I'll go back and just look at it. I wasn't thinking I was going to climb it. And, and that's uh, like the holy grail of climbing, right? It is. It is. It's like the, it's like the Mecca of climbing, you know, all climbers want to go to Yosemite at some point. And I loved Yosemite. I'd been there, uh, probably three times before I got hurt and climbed El Cap. And when I climbed El Cap, the, I had climbed it once before and I had only climbed it uh, with a buddy and it took us five days, um, five days, four nights, you know, this was an able bodied person, very fit at the time. And so going back, I just thought, eh, my body's probably not gonna be able to do that anymore, but that's fine. I'm just going to go and climb some stuff there and just be in the Valley. But I spoke to a gentleman, a uh, good friend of mine now, um, his name's Hans Florine. And Hans said, you know, just come out, we'll climb it together in a day and just see what that's like. And I was like, in a day. And it took you five days the last time. Yeah. As an able-bodied climber and Hans, um, it's important to, to know he, he kind of had the speed record on El Cap for many, many years. So he's climbed El Cap in under, um, three hours. And so wow. he was like, you know, this is no big deal. We'll just get it done. And me, I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. So I guess we'll go out there and just die. And that'll be, that'll be interesting. But I thought I was either going to die or get destroyed again. And, um, met Hans in June, um, of 06. And we just decided, well, let's just go do something and see what happens. And so hiked up to the base and climbed a route and we ended up doing it in 14 hours, um, which wow. was to me mind blowing. Cause you know, you, you have this destroyed body, you have this mentality of that's just not something that's going to happen. And then it happens and you're like, you're not quite sure what to do with it. You're just kind of like, for, for him, that was just a regular day at the office. For me, that was just like, oh my gosh, what the, what the heck just mm -hmm. happened and what else could I do with this? And um, when we came down, this guy had kind of done a lot of the, the writing and interviewing and he sent that stuff off and that just got the attention of some of the outdoor industry companies um, uh, such as Arcturex and Evolve Climbing Shoes and they contacted me and said, hey, what are you going to do next? What we'd like to help you. And that started me down this road of working with these companies as a, as a professional climber. And they support me in, you know, what I do, my travels. Um, they help me, you know, with, with all the things, the expenses, all those things that kind of come up along the way. And I've now worked with these industry folks for the past, um, gosh, 15 years now. And you do a lot of work with uh, other disabled climbers, right? Or other disabled people who are learning to climb, perhaps. Correct. Um, what I was doing was, you know, I was climbing probably about six years after the accident. And I actually came home from Yosemite. And a buddy of mine was taking some veterans who had lost their legs um, out climbing. And he just, he contacted me and said, hey, man, do you want to come just work with these guys a little bit? Show them what you do with your prosthetic and, and what they can do. And I was kind of resistant to it. I wasn't. Super, it wasn't really on my radar, I, I guess I should say. Um, but he he made a really good pitch and uh, ended up going down and meeting him on a Saturday, and it just it just blew me away. There was four of them. We took them climbing all day. They were just like, "Holy crow! Climbing's really really rad, and this is really neat, and this is cool what you're doing." And and I was able to introduce them to this thing that I loved and show them kind of how it could help them in their re rehabilitation, and that that really just started me down this adaptive road uh, where now it's evolved into me. I work with veterans. I work with um, people of all different disabilities and take them. I introduce them to climbing. So I, I start them in a climbing gym and then I move them eventually outside. And, and hopefully what I tell people is I'm in the, 
business of building climbers. I'm not really here to build adaptive climbers. I'm just here to build a climber. Um, because hmm. when I got hurt and came back to climbing, that's all I wanted to be. I just wanted to be a climber. I didn't want people to go, oh, he's that disabled guy. It's just, hmm. I want to be a climber. And um, climbers are really great at accepting that kind of a thing. They're, they're very non-judgmental. -judgment, they're very supportive. And I wanted these um, veterans and, and civilians to see that and feel that and know that they weren't alone. Because I mm. think when you get hurt, you feel like you're alone. You're the only person going through it. And in reality, you're not. There's, there's thousands and thousands of people going through what you're going through. And so I'm just that person to introduce them to this sport that has given me so much. I remember a couple of years ago, you told me a story about this uh, kid who is disabled and uh, you taught him how to climb. Can you, can you tell me that story again where he uses this harness thing and pulls himself up? And Right. Yeah. So that his, his first name is Sam and um, he's a young guy. He's actually now he's like 21, I think. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so when I met him, he was 18, 18 or 19. And, um, you know, again, a lot of the times these kids um, have these injuries and they're told by doctors and, and it's a well-meaning doctor. I don't mean this by any means a slam towards the medical community, but the medical community tends to hedge their bets on the safety side and say, you know, you're not going to be able to do these things anymore. And he was told that he was told, you know, you're not going to be able to do any of the sports that you had done previously. You're going to, you know, your life's going to look very different and life does look really different. But what I told him was, it doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's different. So you have to just have to figure out how to adapt to your new normal. Um, so whatever your new normal is, let's figure it out. And so Sam is in a wheelchair. And so took him climbing outside for the first time. And what we do is we fix a rope to the top of the climb and we use a, a it's a kind of a doing a modified pull up on a mechanical advantage setup. So they only have to lift a percentage of their weight. So, you know, if he's a hundred pound person, he's only going to have to lift 25 pounds. I, I rig it up as a one to three gear ratio so that he's just lifting that one third of his weight. And you can get someone basically climbing right out of their wheelchair, um, up mm. a wall, up a rope. And it's incredibly empowering. You have this individual who, like I said, was told you're just not going to be able to do anything. All of a sudden they're doing a sport that, you know, a very small percentage of normal human beings are doing and yet you've got this this person who has these disabilities just shrugging them off and climbing up a wall and it's incredibly empowering it's incredibly um gives this confidence boost that they just it's really hard to get and you just watch them grow and just expand their their ability of what what they think is is possible now does that kind of response from people does that give you purpose yeah you know i i think I think as humans, we all struggle with like, what are we supposed to be doing? You know, what, I, I don't right. think anyone is like, I just want to go through and, you know, do my own thing and not, be, you know, I think all of us at some level want to give back to something, um, whatever that is, whether it's our marriage, whether it's friendships, whether it's relationships. But I feel like for me, when I got hurt, um, coming back to climbing and coming back to this community, I quickly realized, okay, these people do a lot for people. And so what can I actually do for people? What, what, what is in my skill set? I guess my wheelhouse that, that I could give to someone else. And that was this ability to adapt to the vertical environment as a disabled athlete. And what it gave me was this purpose of, 
I have this thing that I find very valuable. I'm going to show it to these people and then let them decide. And they may or may not embrace it. That doesn't matter to me. What, what matters to me is that I'm just helping them expand what they see as possible because hmm. their sight line when you're disabled is very narrow. And if you have people like me coming into your life and saying, hey, I know you're seeing this, but just look at this and this will expand your vision of what's possible, you've just opened up the door to possibility for them. So whether they embrace climbing or not, that's not my, my issue. My issue is they're looking at it going, oh, well, if I could rock climb with that guy, maybe I can do you know X, Y, Z. And that gives me this really great feeling of, of accomplishment and purpose as far as just exposing them to this sport, and which is then you know by default exposes them to the possibilities in their own life. Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of a mindset shift for people that they're, yes. they're in this one mindset of, I probably can't do this or can't do these activities ever again, but now you're coming in and say, oh yeah, you can. Yeah. And we're going and, to do it together. And we're going to do it. We're going to do it successfully. We're going to do it safely. And I think that when you're in these, these um, traumatic events, you're being told by people who are respected and are, are the, the top of the heap in their field that you're never going to be able to do these things. And I was told all these things too. I was told, you know, you're not going to be able to walk again. You're not going to be able to do anything by yourself again. Um, but you, as, as an individual, I was like, well, you know, I don't really buy into that. So I'm just going to do my own thing. Not everyone has that mentality. You sometimes need a person to come in and say, I know what they said. I hear it too, but here's the thing. No one is, nothing is the same. Everybody's different. Everyone, I have a good friend who always says everyone's a snowflake. And so every snowflake is different. So um, they're basically telling you that all snowflakes are the same and that they're going to respond the same way. Well, that's not true. Every human responds differently to stimulus. And so we're just here to offer that stimulus and and give them hopefully a catalyst uh, to look at something a little bit different instead of just looking at what they're told. Mm-hmm. So out of all the things that you've done and you've been featured in a lot of magazines and news articles and you've been around the world, what's, what's the one thing you're most proud of? Wow. Wow. Um, man, I, I think, you know, I, you know, from a proud, proud, I would say just being able to, I, I think influence someone in a really dark part of their life. I think I'm able to do that on a fairly regular basis. I'm able to touch these people. I just, did it last night with, um, I work a lot with Craig hospital, which is a a spinal cord injury hospital here in in Denver. And I was able to work with these folks who had never climbed before. Um, they're still inpatients. They're still very much in this really hard trauma curve where, you know, they, they've been injured very recently. They're coming back to life. Um, and they're discovering what's available to them. And so that feeling of being able to just open up their minds a little bit to, Hey, I know you're in a wheelchair now, but here's the thing. You can do this thing that a lot of people are afraid of, like won't even go near as an able-bodied person. I'm here to tell you, you can actually do this. And so I watched five people last night, uh, three of them in wheelchairs climb for the first time. And that is something I never get tired of. Um, mm. It makes me makes me so proud. You know, the, the climbing accomplishments I've done, um, I've been very fortunate to be you know, right place, right time with able to do some things, some speed records and some firsts and win some, some things, some comps, but those are all very, I feel like very, um, 
selfish and self-involved. Um, whereas these things are something that's lasting, you know, when you climb something hard, as soon as you climb it, it's, it's over and you're moving on to the next thing. So this is something that lasts. It's very, it, it has more permanence in my mind where you're able to hopefully shift the idea of how somebody looks at themselves and, and you're giving them this confidence and, and um, kind of self-importance again, where they're mm-hmm. feeling like, Oh, I am a valued human being. I am a person of, of a disability, but I'm also a person who can achieve great things if they choose to. And just for our listeners, just so you know, I think Craig, you can maybe correct me on this, but uh, Craig is known in the climbing world as the climbing Gandhi. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that came, that came from a, we were doing an ascent on El Cap um, and all of us able to ascent, which was um, super fun to do. It took us like two years to actually get it done, but we ended up getting it done. And my one partner's I'm, I'm, it's funny in my mind, I'm not, um, I'm not very patient in my mind, but like, I guess I come off as very patient and calm with people, especially in like the vertical environment. And my one friend said, uh, he's like Gandhi, he's like climbing with Gandhi. Um, or maybe that's just cause I don't eat a lot. I don't know. One of those. Two things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a pretty cool, uh, Pretty cool description, though, to have that have that nomaker on, on you know. Behind yeah, you, I so. could I could be compared to worse people for <laughs> yeah, sure. For sure, yeah. He's the Genghis Khan of climbing. <laughs> <laughs> could be a lot worse. He chucks rocks at people, right? Yes, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> so, what influences your decisions daily? Daily. Um, oh man, uh, a lot of what influences me now are just kind of where I see myself fitting into not only the climbing world, but the world at large, kind of how I can influence people um, on many different levels. You know, Cindy and I have been married for a long time and and I see, we do a lot together. Um, She's always been my best friend and I see that and climbing and this, this adaptability and these, these, these disabled clinics that we do, um, they influence me on many different levels and they influence other people. I've, I've seen it happen now over the years where people just want to know how that all works together. You know, how do you make a marriage work? How do you make a friendship work? How do you make an adaptability work as far as it pertains to climbing? Um, how does all that stuff fit together? And I think that gives me great purpose now where I'm just aware that it is out there. I'm aware that people watch it and I'm aware that people want to know about it. And so we kind of go to not great lengths, but we, we go to lengths to ex- explain it to people when we're working, when we're working together, um, how we work together, when we're teaching, how we teach together, um, how we can kind of push people outside of their own comfort zones um, and still remain, you know, best friends throughout, throughout that entire thing. Those are, those are things that kind of keep me focused and, and I think purposeful in my own life. Hmm. Very cool. What's the next big thing for you? We are going, actually, we were just doing, planning it um, yesterday. Uh, we do, we've been doing a lot of work down in Puerto Rico um, with the veterans population down there. And so Puerto Rico is a, a, a constantly changing playing field for us. So we're going to go back to Puerto Rico uh, in March. Um, but then Cindy and I are actually going to travel down to this place called Alport. Portero Chico in Mexico to climb uh, alone on some large, there's really large limestone cliffs down there, like 2,000 feet tall. So we're going to go down mm. and climb some of those um, and then continue expanding um, this adapting climbing program around the country. Um, I work with a nonprofit that's based in Denver um, called Adaptive Adventures, and they kind of 
they kind of give me free reign to create climbing programs wherever I, I think there's a need. And so I travel around the country doing that, um, working with individuals. I'm headed to Spokane. I actually head to Minnesota tomorrow. Um, some of my sponsors, uh, I'll go and kind of give talks for them. And so Arcturex is one of my, uh, is my large clothing sponsor who I've worked with for years. And I'm going to speak at one of their stores in the mall of America tomorrow. Oh, so, very cool. Uh, be there and then um yeah continue just to kind of build these programs around the country so here's a question that i ask kind of everybody it's one of the final wrap-up questions when the movie about your life is made what will the log line be and the log line is that phrase sentence that describes the movie oh man i would have to say um it would be something about you know, that say, what is that saying? It's not how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get back up. Hmm. Um, I think for me, that's, that would be my log line. Cause I feel like people look at me and go, Oh, he's recovered completely. He's healed completely. And, hmm. and the sad truth is I'm not, you know, I'm still a very injured, injured individual. Um, you know, lots of injuries that are going to last me my whole life, um, that I have hmm. to take medications for and do lots of different things for. And, I feel like I get knocked down on, on a regular basis, but I feel like that, that ability to get back up is something that I'm key. I think I'm pretty like locked into where I can, mm-hmm. I can just look at a situation and say, okay, it's bad. Um, but I'm going to be able to get back up and adapt and change in this way and move forward. So I would need an editor to clean that up, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's, I think it would be, it would float around that. Somehow. Kind of jumping off of that, talking about failure, you've had you had some failure in your life, and 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 how do you deal with that? How do you deal when things don't work out? So many failures. Um, I think people are really funny. They always latch onto your successes, and they feel like that's all you ever do. And I'm here to tell you that for every success I've had, I've probably had three to four times the amount of failures that have led up to it. And like that one Yosemite climb that I referenced, um, we tried over the course of two years to do this one climb and we ended up doing it, but it took a long time to figure out how to do it. Um, With me, I've learned to not get attached to my failures or my successes. So as odd as that sounds, um, when I fail at something, I just go, okay, how do I retool that and try something different now? How do I come at that from a different angle? And that might be a really small tweak for me. It might be the way I approach training for that particular climb. That it might be the way I tweak someone's adaptations if I'm teaching them how to climb. Um, whatever it is, I'll change these, make these micro adjustments that end up being major differences. And those micro adjustments, I think, are what people kind of gloss over and think uh, it's not that that's not the problem. I'm looking at this big failure. It, it usually comes down to these small mini things that are going wrong. And I don't tend to focus on those. And what I tend to do is address them and say, okay, that's what it is maybe. So I'm going to make this little change and see what happens. And I'll change it a little bit, try it again, change it a little bit, try it again. And eventually what happens, you just wear it down. Um, I only do this one thing. I'm, I'm not a multitasker. I'm not a multi-sport individual. I am a climber. That's all I know how to do. And so I'm able to make these micro changes that I know will influence it in a major way. Eventually you just have to give it time. And then once I succeed at something, I don't focus on that too much either. I just focus on, okay, now that particular hurdle is done. I'm going to move on to the next one because there's always something 
down the road. So I think not getting attached to either the failure or the success and just realizing that there will be an outcome and you have to adapt to whatever that outcome is, good or bad, and know that it's it's a fluid situation always. You're never you're never locked into something the rest of your life, you know. If I'm failing today, I'm not failing the rest of my life. I'm just failing today, which is whatever. Today's Wednesday. I'm failing on a Wednesday. Thursday might be the most successful day of my career, but Friday might be the worst. So, mm. you know, I don't get attached to too much of either side. I just let them happen and I try to enjoy the the whole process that's involved with it. Yeah, very good. So what's the best way people can uh, find you to look you up on social media or in some of the short films you've been in? What's the best yeah. way they can find you? They can go to my website, which is craigdmartino.com, um, or they can go uh, – social media is – Facebook is Craig D. Martino. Social media Instagram is at Craig Dem, C-R-A-I-G-D-E-M, and Twitter is at Klein. Um, but going through my website, they can see some of the films that I've been in. Um, I have a film touring now with Banff and um, Five Point Film Festival called Out on a Limb, which is uh, a film we made about a prosthetic climbing foot that I helped design and test. And that's kind of hitting the road here um, this and in January now. So that, that'll be out and about on film circuits. And um, they can contact me right through the website as well. Um, so, yeah, feel free to reach out. Awesome. So do you know uh, Eric Honnold? Alex. Yeah, yeah Alex. Alex. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yep. Actually, I just did a poster signing with him about a month, month and a half ago. Oh, very cool. Uh, last year. Yeah, yeah. So he, Alex is um, based in Vegas now. Um, see him periodically. Yeah, I've known him for, known him for, gosh, a long time, 10 years or more. Um, in fact, when yeah. he started working on Free Solo, or that the climb, the climb, it's called right. the Freerider. Um, I was in the valley uh, when he was there, and that's actually the first time I met him. Hmm. And I now, you know, I've heard about this him doing this for ten years. And so when he actually did it, I actually didn't think he would ever do it. And then hmm. as he got closer, he kind of got real quiet, and I didn't hear him or see from him or see him or hear from him for probably a couple of years because he was so enmeshed in it mm-hmm. and just. If you've Focus. seen the film, yeah, he, he did not get out of that bubble. And uh, now having seen him on the other side of it, it's really, it's really crazy to me. Like when we did the poster signing, I would say, obviously, I was just like this ancillary thing off to the side. And uh, probably over half of them were not climbers. Mm. They were just people who had seen the film and just loved the film. And I, I realized, oh my gosh, this guy has just like – blown up out of the climbing world he's Mm. so not just a climber he is very much a a core climber Mm -hmm. he's a dirtbag at heart you know lives and loves to live in his van Mm. um but now he is you know he has this new level of of fame you know he won an oscar my gosh that's huge so it's crazy to see where he's been and where he's going and um he's a he's a cool guy i like him yeah it's unbelievable what he did yep yep and he just got engaged (laughs) just got engaged this christmas right Very awesome. Well, Craig, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again for your willingness to come on the on the My Story podcast and be a part of this. I I know when I first started this podcast, uh, you were on the you were on the short list for me. (laughs) On the program, Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Craig, for taking time to talk with me. I really appreciate what you're doing with people with disabilities, and it's always amazing to watch your progress and see what you're doing around the world. I really 
uh, appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. And I'm hoping that one day we can work together on a film project or a TV show. We'll have to get together and work on that. So a couple of takeaways that I have from today's interview. These are more questions than answers. So uh, feel free to chime in on Facebook and Apple Podcasts or on the My Story podcast page. First, if what you do is your primary identity, what happens when you can no longer do that thing? It's something that I struggle with sometimes. You know, I'm a filmmaker and identify myself as a filmmaker, identify as a filmmaker. But if that's taken away, how will I identify myself? Well, I'm also a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother. You know, so I think it's important for us to think about these things and not get so tied into just being that one thing, that job that we have that uh, is our full identity. And I think Craig is a great example of that, that he's taken, you know, he was a photographer at one time, he was also a climber, and he identifies as a climber, but now he's a climber who not only climbs, but he helps others. And I think that's a, a powerful story that uh, we can all learn from. You know, the second thing that I've taken away from today's interview with Craig is the question of, am I living my life in the past? Do I focus on my past successes or failures? Are these driving what I do today? Are my successes or failures shaping how I live my life right now? What is my focus? And I think it's clear that Craig has been able to put these things behind him, the failures, maybe the failure of, of even miscommunicating on his climb and, and having this tragic accident. But he's able to move on from that and to see life in a different way. And I really liked this idea of helping others see their circumstances from a new perspective. And I think that's something that all of us need to do at times is stop and look at our life, look at our circumstances from a new perspective, from a new vantage point. And I think sometimes these, this, the new vantage point will help us make decisions that uh, can be more productive and lead us to, toward the life that we need to live. And maybe, just maybe, we can help other people see their life in a different way. And maybe it won't change the circumstance, but perhaps it will give someone just enough motivation they need to move forward toward their purpose. So when we all do this, what could the world be like? And so those are just a few of my thoughts from today's podcast interview. So, well, someone who's found their purpose is Kyle Sailors. Kyle is my guest next week on the My Story podcast. He's an award-winning film director, and he's a founder of Dinner with Dreamers, a private dining club for creatives and cultural influencers. He's had dinner with more than 3,000 of his friends over the past few years, and his private dinners have been so successful they've been written about in the Huffington Post and featured on some television shows as well. So tune in next week to hear Kyle's story of growing up in Texas and having a dream of making movies. And now he's living out that dream in a big way and he's connecting people through his very popular dinner parties. So that's next week on the My Story podcast. Hey, if you enjoy these podcasts and think more people should listen, I would heartily agree. So why don't you give me a review on Apple Podcasts and then share this episode with a friend and you can send it through a text message or an email or through a Facebook post. And be sure to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook so you don't miss an episode. 
The music on today's show, as always, is from my friend Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. Last, be sure to subscribe. Hit the subscribe button. Yes, just the little button that says subscribe. Subscribe to the show so you won't miss an episode. And if you have an idea for an interview you'd like to hear, send me a message and I'll see what I can do. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you again next week on the My Story Podcast.